Welcome to episode 252 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So we have an epic conversation coming up in this episode. We're going to talk a little mercy, a little correction, and a little antinomianism. Oh, man. And to anticipate a bit, two of those are basically the same thing, and one of them is not like the others. <laughs> so we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But before we do, we want to remind everybody that we want to give people some books, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We love to give people books. So we're doing a giveaway. We have... Uh, couple books from our uh, Lutherans in Residence. If you didn't listen to the uh, on-the-fly Ocean Grove Lutheran uh, extravaganza from a couple <laughs> weeks back, uh, just search for the word Lutheran, then you're probably only going to find like two episodes. It's not the Lord's Supper one. It's the other one. Not that uh, one. So check it out. It was a great episode. We had a blast with those guys. But we are giving away uh, copies of a couple of books that they wrote. So Jesse, how does someone enter? I'm going to leave the complicated part to you. How does someone enter these contests for these books? Here's the thing. We got three great books. And we're talking about three books by Chad Bird, Eric Sorensen. And all you have to do basically is just share these to some kind of social media or write a review on Apple Podcasts and then just take a little snippet of it, send it to us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. So here's the, all the formal legalese here. If you are interested in getting a copy of The Christ Key by Chad Bird, just go drop a little Apple rating on, no, Apple rating, a rating on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> It doesn't even, here's the thing. I'm going to say this too, Tony. I don't know how you feel about this. It doesn't have to be five stars. I kind of hate the obligation where people say like, drop a five-star review for us on. Yeah. If you don't like us, that's okay. You can drop that review, take a picture of it and send it to us. Cue all the still... Lutherans that are like, yes, I hate this show, but I love Chad Bird. <laughs> yes. Then listen, we got something for you, brother or sister. Our average, so... our average rating just dropped to like 1.3. That's yeah. I mean, that's fine. Listen, we're like yeah. equal opportunity here. Like we want your feedback. So true. go to Apple podcasts, give a rating, take a snippet of that to, to win or the Christ key. If you're interested in scandalous stories, which is a sort of commentary on the parables, this is by Eric Sorensen and Daniel Emery price, share the podcast, share an episode, share the podcast in general on Twitter, take a little image of that, send it to us at info reformbrotherhood.com. And lastly, if you're interested in winning Night Driving, Notes from a Prodigal Soul by Chad Bird, this is his basic autobiography of his spiritual journey. Fantastic. All you have to do is share the podcast on Facebook. So you can do an Apple review. You can do a sharing of the podcast on Twitter or Facebook, and then just send us an image of that wonderful sharing that you did, and you will be entered to win. Yes. And make sure that we receive said email with a screenshot of your entry uh, no later than September 3rd, uh, which is uh, going to be the Friday before we record the episode where we announce the winners. So you can send that to info at reformbrotherhood.com, or you can send it to reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. We will check both of those emails for the contest entries. And you can enter multiple uh, options, but you can yeah, only you win can. once. So if you got your heart set on one of the books and only enter for that one, otherwise, if you happen to be that that super lucky guy that all the rest of us plebs who never win anything uh, hate, uh, and you win all three, we're just going to pick one and send you whichever one we we want to send you. I'm trying to give a call to all our listeners here 
that you should do this because we have some entries, but your chances right now are pretty good that mm-hmm. you're going to win one of these books. So come on, everybody. Just That's send true. us a quick snapshot of how you've shared the podcast, how you're tracking with us, and we'll get you in the mix. Yeah. I mean, if you want to share the podcast and not send a screenshot, you can do that too. We're not going to like somehow penalize you. You're just not going to win a book. Yeah. There's just, I, this is, I just can't help but come back to this. Free books, loved ones. Free books. Free books. It's true. We want to put into your hand some amazing literature about our yeah. Savior. It's That's true. That's what we want to do. It's true. Yeah. Well, Jesse, why don't we move on to some affirmations and denials? We'll get free started books. here. Free books. Are you affirming free books? <laughs> no, I just felt like I had to say it one last time. Free books. Free books. All right. So let's do affirmations and denials. Would you like to go first or second? I'll go, I'll go first. It's pretty short. So this is going to sound a lot more grandiose than it actually is. I'm affirming handiness. So one of the things that I am not so great at sometimes is handiness. And what I mean by handiness is like, it's sort of like the practical knowledge and skill of being able to like just figure things out. Like the example, uh, yesterday I was out mowing the church lawn and I go to engage the blade and it, it like nothing happens. So my first instinct is like pull the pull the mower back into the shed and call somebody who knows what they're doing. But I was like, you know what? Like I'm I'm a pretty smart guy. Like this is a pretty simple machine the way that this belt works. So like I got under there and I like started taking things off and like then put it back together and I I got it working. And like there was something that was so like rewarding about being able to do that, but also like it's just really useful. So I'm I'm affirming kind of practical handiness. Um, it, it's something you can cultivate. Like, it's not like, oh yeah, he's just a natural handy person. Like some people are more inclined towards mechanical type type things, but with the amount of resources that are out there, the one place that I got stuck, it, what it was is the, the belt that drives the blades, the, the deck belt had slipped off of the pulleys. And so like I had to get in there and, you know, like reposition things, get enough slack to be able to get it back over the pulley. But like, I had to look up the schematic to figure out like these these mower belts they loop in a very particular way and if you don't have them looped right it's just going to snap the belt so like there's so much information out there online so many resources to be able to figure this stuff out i'm not saying like like never go to a mechanic again and also like no shame if you don't change your own oil like i don't i pay to have my oil changed cuz i just it's not worth my time in terms of like the amount of time it takes me to do i would much rather just pay someone else to do it and get on with my day uh, that's a personal decision. No shame if you do or don't do that. But it is really useful because especially like yesterday, like I didn't have time to get it fixed and the lawn needed to be mowed. Otherwise, the yard was going to look like trash for church today. So having a little bit of practical knowledge and a little bit of wherewithal to figure out where to find this stuff online was really useful. So I'm affirming practical handiness. I really wish I was more handy. I know exactly what you mean because I just admire so much people who have garnered like a skill set and that kind of thing. They can fix a lot of things. They can solve a lot of problems, like in a practical sense, especially if you're a homeowner yeah. and you know, things just break, things need maintenance. But I blame in some ways my father for this because this man so closely followed after our Lord Jesus Christ that before he went into formal ministry as a pastor, he trained to be a carpenter. So the man is like a legit carpenter. Somehow he decided not to pass that along to any of his children. So <laughs> I don't know how to do anything, but like he is able to fix. And I mean, you've seen him do stuff like an incredible number of things. Like he can do framing all on his own. He can conceive of all that stuff. He's a very talented and handy man. I know he's, he's honed that. So I kind of like say to him, 
why didn't you teach me any of this stuff? That's why you didn't learn any of this, because he's so handy. I experience that all the time. You, you know, I'll be like, hey, Dad, I, like, there's this thing at the parsonage broke, and I, you, can you come over and show me how to fix it? Partially because like, I don't want him to have to come over and like do it every time because he's a busy guy, but also because like, I, I need to learn this stuff. And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'll come over sometime. And then like I'll come home from work, and you know it's the parsonage, so he's got a key. I'll come home from work, and there's like a little note on the table that's like, oh, I fixed the sink. And I'm like, but I wanted you to show me. So he's just such a doer and such a handy guy that he just takes care of it. And then you're like, but I don't have any idea what you did and how you did it. So... Yeah, he's real good, and he is somehow real good. May, maybe, like you said, it was just because we everything was getting fixed that right. we never, as children, had to contend with trying to understand that process or struggle with him because he just knew how to do it. So, yeah. Now, as like an adult, I'm like, I don't know. It, like, I just thought the other day. It's funny you bring this up. I just thought the other day how valuable plumbers are. Plumbers, yeah. are like, we should be paying them in gold or Bitcoin or whatever they want because. That's going I mean, like we pretty much do. <laughs> <laughs> Plumbers are expensive. <laughs> they are, and but like rightfully so, because if you ever had a, like a serious plumbing issue, oh, you yeah. know how complicated it is to fix. It's something you just take for granted. It's like giving greater honor to like the more humble parts. Like yeah, that's plumbing. I feel like we just turned into a micro podcast. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah, Plumbers I are feel like. Um, yeah, I feel like plumbers are the way to go. I, I just, I don't know. They, they definitely are. Yeah. You can't, you can't, uh, cause you can't could, fake that. Yeah. That, I could get all not... like theological and talk about the usage of the word w- wisdom in the old time. I'm not going to do that, but like, yeah, you can't underestimate the importance of just like practical know-how of how to like how things work and how to like make them work and how to fix them. It just like it's it's an invaluable skill set. So I'm affirming personal handiness. Next time something breaks uh, that you are are trying to figure out what to do with, take a few minutes, just think about whether it's something you can fix. You know, like maybe not like your first try shouldn't be like the brake lines on your car. Like maybe take that to the professional. <laughs> but like if it's something something that's you know you're not going to die if you do it wrong. Like maybe, maybe try it before you just bring it to a professional or call someone in. Yeah. Uh, we, we, maybe we should say by way of disclaimer, know your lane people, please. True. Don't, yeah. don't be trying to fix your brake lines. <laughs> like unless yeah. you went right to that. Like don't just yeah. get underneath your car. If you got problems with your brakes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sh- for, for sure. Uh, so what about you? What are you affirming today, Jesse? I want to go in a different direction. I know at least there are some brothers and sisters who turned to this podcast for amazing music recommendations. So it's been a while for me since I've dropped one of those and I've got a little something for everybody. So first I'm affirming two brand new albums actually of totally different genres. So the one, the first one I'm affirming is by a band called Spirit Breaker. The album is called Curanata. It just came out. These guys are on solid state records. This is of the pretty hard variety. So Tony, probably not for you per se. I'd be happy for you to listen to this album but this is probably not the one I would necessarily recommend for you. But I don't know if you've had this happen. I listened to this album a couple of times this week. Again, brand new, just came out. And these guys are just crushing it. I sometimes listen to music and I stop and I'm like, ooh, that was tasty. And that happened a <laughs> lot while I was listening to this album. There was just like some riffs, some turn of phrasing, some lyrics, some breakdowns. Absolutely glorious, but it is hardcore. So you know what you're getting into. The second affirmation to again, spread the love is for something that's in the, maybe the opposite genre. 
Citizens, who we've talked about in this podcast before, they have many great albums, have revitalized and renewed a couple of different hymns. They have a Live in Sydney album that just came out on July 16th of this year. It's super good. And what I was impressed with is sometimes when you listen to a live album, it's like a little bit kitsch or corny. It doesn't really translate well. The music is not the way you're used to listening to it. It's not performed quite as well. This album is incredible. It sounds very close to the actual recording. In fact, I was impressed with how much they're able to do live. But it has that renewed energy, that kind of nice vibe. It has all of the beautiful, whoever recorded this did a great job. It sounds fantastic. And the crowd singing at certain points, antiphonally and in conjunction with the choruses or as like a call and response, it's really good. So everybody should also look up Live in Sydney by The Citizens. For me, like note for note, The Citizens are as close to like modern hymnody for me in their original music as anybody. Uh, the stuff nice. is like really leads me into like amazing doxology. The theolo- theological content is so deep and rich in their music. So the live album is something that you should definitely stream this week. Get get after it. Nice. You know, I, I ran into this interesting little uh, phenomena online this week. Uh, it, it's interesting how sometimes things spread through the internet a little bit like a virus. Like five or six people that I know online we're like, you know what song I listened to this week? And I was like, what's that? And they're like, my life be like, ooh. <laughs> and I, I traced it back. There was a meme that was like, basically was like a reference to that song. And I had listened to it. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, all these other people listen to it. What's going on? We all just saw the same meme and looked up the same song online. So not that I like grits. I mean, I don't like the food or the band, but like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I just, I, you have to listen to that song. It's like one of those songs yeah. that people of a certain, a certain generation of people who listen to Christian music, that was like the unfortunate soundtrack of like 18 or 19 years old for me. I think, I don't know when that song came out. I have to look it up. Yeah, that's, I would say you're, you're probably, that's right in the ballpark there. I haven't listened to that in a while, but I agree with you. There's, that's not like the only great song I actually know. I think that's the only great song anybody actually knows. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I, it's just one of those, it has its own Wikipedia entry, so that's cool. Wow, that's pretty uh, Let's impressive. see, 2002. So yeah, I was like 19 years old. So this is like the soundtrack of my freshman year of college. It's like, ooh, ah, ooh. That's it. That's the whole, that's all there is to the song as far as actually, I'm concerned. That was actually pretty good. I thought you would just start playing it. That's, yeah, well. this is the thing about, we said this before, what a lovely gift that God has given us in music because it distills and crystallizes these memories for us. So we think back to, like again, like Israel using the Psalter, basically knowing this by heart because you know, think about all the songs you and I know by heart, just case in point, like I could give you probably the first several bars of that. And then there's also the part where Toby Mac comes in. Yeah. And I think we all know that part, right? Ooh, wah, ooh. Uh, I don't. I I don't really remember. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Yum, yum, diddy. (laughs) Oh, man. Yum, yum, diddy. What does that even mean? What does that even mean, Toby Mac? It's Toby Toby Mac. Again, I don't know. You know him best of the two of us. So I've never met. He's the one I don't know. Oh, that's right. He's the one that you have. He's the one. He's, He's the one that I have to get. He's the he's like the legendary box art Pokemon that I can't find. Listen, before that we... joke is really good. You just don't understand how great it is. It's fine. I don't. Okay, that's no. That's like a was like a really like a really top shelf Pokemon reference joke. So, well, I'm comforted by the fact that I'm sure somebody listening got that and just laughed out loud. Yeah, like probably in their Jackson car. Hall. 
or uh, yeah, or at their desk yeah. somewhere. They really just threw their head back yeah. and laughed hilariously. I would like to. I'll try to do more research. Speaking of being more handy, I'll try to do more research so I can contextualize that joke properly. But <laughs> please do. I would but, like you to summarize that in a in a brief like ten minute episode special episode we upload. That's where I come back as like an addendum, and I'm like, yeah. listen, <laughs> here we need to talk about box art Pokemon here. <laughs> this was. I need to repent of how I did not laugh at that joke. It was so good. <laughs> I had no idea. So this is the thing, again, about music is that I just love that God gives it to us as this tool, not only to help us remember and to recapitulate the things that we've learned, but it is this wonderful thing that crystallizes our memories. So, you know, like when Israel's either singing about the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea or whether they're singing something from the Psalter, like this is... The way, like I'm, I'm imagining now like uh, an ooh ooh version of of the of Miriam's like. She, I mean, she had a tambourine, so that's that's yeah. part way there. I mean, I feel like it's probably it's probably in four four measure, so you could probably sing <laughs> one. Of, you could probably grab like the like David's the hymns, uh, Psalms of David in meter, and sing that song to this. How, how has nobody done this? So at the risk of totally derailing, before we just do the denials real quick, I have to admit that this past week I was actually reading that portion of Exodus and just thinking about Miriam and the ladies and the rock and the tambourines. And maybe everybody's been part of a church where somebody uh, brings the tambourine and that's dangerous because it can either be real good or real bad, depending on real bad. The, yeah, <laughs> depending on their, real bad. On, on their rhythm. But I was thinking because of the lyrics, you know, at least translated into English of that whole song. And it is a song. It's a long song, actually. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't a hardcore band just basically made a song? Because that's like hard, that's a hardcore lyric right there, right? Like, oh, yeah. The, the horse and rider being thrown into the sea, like talking about drowning, God drowning out his enemies, God drowning yeah. your sin. Like, that's a hardcore song. Somebody needs to make that. When I was in youth group in high school, we had a choir director at our church. We was also in like a touring youth choir. And he was in a sort of like a like a rap core like group called Minds Clarence. And oh, nice! <laughs> have you heard of Minds Clarence? The name is familiar. The name uh, is familiar. And they did a song about killing a thousand men with a jawbone. It was pretty. It was pretty hardcore. So don't, don't look up that band. It's, it's terrible, terrible music. But you know, we were obsessed with our cool dreadlock wearing rapping white boy choir director who sang about Samson killing a thousand men with a jawbone. So I dig it. I dig it. Well, let's do some denials then. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into this. It's at, it's a perennial denial on this show. I'm, I'm just denying unnecessary quarreling. So sometimes fighting and, and sort of like theological combat and sparring like those things are important and like sometimes reformed Christians particular, like we kind of spar with each other because we understand that we're going to be in situations sometimes where we have to, we have to fight, you know, theologically we have to fight, whether it's kind of stopping the mouth of the scoffer, like thinking about like dealing with atheists or, or hostile religions or kind of like edifying the saints by correcting their error. Like that's something reformed Christians typically are very comfortable with. And so we tend to practice some of this like wits and jabbing at each other. We jab, we practice with each other. And I think sometimes, and I'm, I'm the chief of sinners on this, I guess, sometimes we lose sight of the purpose of that sparring that we do with each other. And it just now, and then it just becomes fighting with each other. And I had this experience where I was trying to have a conversation with a brother of mine, uh, in, in the reform faith, and we were trying to kind of work through a particular theological issue. 
And uh, in this instance, I happened to be the one that was like, look, this is enough. We just need to get down to it. Stop fighting with each other. It, very well, the tables could have been turned. So there's no judgment on him. But I finally just said, I don't want to spar with you right now. This isn't about sparring. This isn't about it. Like, I'm trying to have a serious conversation about this theological issue that I think you're wrong on. And we need to come to some sort of discussion point on it. And like, to his credit, he immediately was like, oh, okay. Well, then, and like the whole tone changed. Like, he just realized, oh, context is different. But I think sometimes, particularly among reformed uh, Christians, particularly online, we lose sight of the fact that like we're on the same side right. and the, the quarreling is not always beneficial. Even when we kind of, we kind of tell ourselves, well, we're, we're, we're sort of training. Like there also comes a point where like that sparring and training, you can lose sight of the purpose of that and it just becomes kind of bickering and quarreling. Um, obviously like there are sometimes you just have to fight, like you got to take your gloves off and go at it. And that's what happens. Um, we don't pull punches with EFS. We don't pull punches with right. you know various kinds of error. Like that's something that this show is known for. So obviously we're okay with throwing throwing a couple haymakers when it's necessary and when it's an important conversation. But a lot of times we let little things that really aren't that important. Those are the things we tend to spar about online, and then we elevate those, and then all of a sudden we're throwing haymakers over like. Not not stupid things, but like things that really are not worth that kind of effort and that kind of theological violence, if you want to think of it that way. So just out of curiosity, so like people who are listening to us get a sense of what you're talking about. What's an example of one of those things? As part that of deserves now, we, a haymaker or it doesn't no, deserve that a haymaker? No, do, that doesn't. Because I think it's easier sometimes to say like, yeah, yeah when we talk about EFS, we're going to we're gonna scrap and die on yeah, that hill. Yeah, I mean, like, I think in most cases uh, within the Reformed faith, differences between like amillennialism, postmillennialism, and, and historic premillennialism. Right on. Those are important things, and we should discuss those, and, and they have implications for all sorts of things. But it's not the kind of thing where, like, I should be blasting, I should be blasting another Reformed brother and, and trying to, like, undercut them and make them look foolish, which is not necessarily inappropriate when you're trying to, like, if I was in a formal debate with, like, Bruce Ware... I would do my best to make his position look foolish because it is foolish, but I wouldn't necessarily think that's an appropriate response in a debate about baptism or about, you know, eschatology or even things like superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. Like some of those things that are so nuanced and so particular, um, those are the kinds of things that I have in mind where we really like fight and fight and fight. Um, and, and like, I understand there's a subjective element to this. Some people would, would be like, what do you mean? Superlapsarianism isn't a haymaker worthy kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Like that's fine. Everybody has their own subjective understanding of what the most important things are. But I, I think we do, we do tend to like throw these heavy punches about some of these things. I see it most, most like obviously online, in like reform Facebook groups, like the pub where people just, they just like blast each other and like really tear at each other. It's like they're out for blood. And right. it, you know, you, you used to do martial arts. I used to do martial arts. Like everybody who's been in martial arts has been in one of those sparring matches where either they took it too far or the person they were sparring with took it too far. And what should have been like, yeah, in a sparring match, like you punch each other, that's what you do. But right. like you, you pull your punches, you, you hold back because you don't want to hurt the person you're training with. Everybody's been in one of those matches where you're, you're sparring with someone and all of a sudden you take a hard kick to the leg or a hard kick to the side. And you're like, wait a second, what are we doing here? That's what I'm talking talking about where you kind of find yourself in a situation where either you realize, whoa, I just, I just theologically punched that guy way harder than I was, I was really intending to, or I really should have been 
given the context, or you kind of find yourself staggering back on, wait a second, why did that guy just hit me that hard? We were supposed to be having a friendly chat about this. So that's, that's what I'm getting at is like, I'm denying that kind of unnecessary quarreling. You know, I've been thinking a lot, especially after our conversation last week about the qualifications for elders. And one of the things it's interesting you know, one of the qualifications is that they're not violent, but gentle, right. which refers to like not being a striker. It has to do with like not physically being violent. Right. But that's distinct from not being a quarrelsome person. Right. So all of the all of the qualifications of elder are things that every Christian should aspire to on to some level. Maybe not teaching. Not everybody is called to teach, but all the rest of them are like quality, like character quality traits that every Christian should aspire to and not being quarrelsome is not the same as not being willing to fight. And that that's where I think we need to get is like a Christian should be willing to fight when it's necessary, but not eager to fight, especially when it's not necessary. If right. that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. And for the sake of time and for unity in this, I think I'm going to jump on your denial train because I like this idea. It, one of the things that has exhausted me sometimes about Christian community, especially more heady Christian community, those who have a penchant for wanting to really study, embrace theology and debate the finer points is it just gets so exhausting because yeah. you can't almost say anything in one of those contexts without somebody like coming at you or putting you on blast yeah. over even small things. So it's just so tiring to be part of those things. Yeah. And I do think it does us a really great disservice because I mean, how many times have you and I over the course of like, you realize we're coming up in like five years of doing this whole little weekly it's conversation crazy. thing. How many times have we come back and said, you know what? We listened, maybe this is mainly me. We listened back to what we said and we we're like, we want to revise it slightly. We want to course yeah. correct on something that we were talking about. And to have a, a space where it's safe to process theology, to ask questions without somebody coming at you and dropping the H-bomb on you and being like, heretic, heretic, this guy's a yeah. her heretic right here, saying, well, I'm really just trying to understand. And if I said something that was not correct, if it didn't have enough biblical nuance, would somebody please gently come and correct it as opposed to dropping immediately into like a just like flamethrower debate yeah. against what I said. So I like what you're, what you're saying there. I think that I don't know how we go forward with that. I don't know how we get more people to just say, can we start with charity first? And I like what you said. This idea of like the elder being not quarrelsome is distinctly, I would say, like in combination with what Paul is saying elsewhere, where he's like, you got to be prepared right. to like de contend and defend the faith. Like you got to be prepared. So these things must exist together. They must be cohesive in the sense that being quarrelsome, don't confuse being quarrelsome with somehow being like a defender of the faith. Right. Those two things are different. One is like the super annoying guy. Like nobody wants to be that guy. The other is the one who faithfully serves the Lord Jesus by doctrine, by being doctrinally established and having strong fidelity to what the scripture says, knowing yeah when to go after. Isn't that like, isn't that like an old um, Calvin quote, something like that? Like the preacher has one voice for talking to the sheep and one voice for dealing with the wolves. Like right. that, that's what we're talking about here, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's do this, right? The face, the Reformed Brotherhood Facebook group has always been there. It's not ever been something we've focused a lot on, but we want to grow this community. So go to Facebook, if you're on Facebook, and look up the Reform Brotherhood Facebook group and join it. Like, we'd really like to build a place where these kind of conversations can happen. And this is not to say, like, oh, the pub is bad, or oh, this Facebook group or that Facebook group is bad. Every Facebook group has its own uses, its own purposes. We're trying to do something different. So if you are interested in, a, in an online community where you can discuss theology and do a little sparring sometimes, it's okay to do right. sparring. It's okay. 
to do that, but to also have a community where people can be like, Hey, you know, like maybe we should, maybe we should just step back a little bit and, and, and like take the edge off of this, join the group. We'd love to have you. We're going to do some things to try to build that group and to try to build some more community there. But the first thing we need to do is we need to get people involved. So join that group, ask a question, answer a question, get started, post a meme, post something. We'd love to see that uh, group start to grow and start to, to gain a little bit momentum. I like that. And I, one of the things I like about our group is that it doesn't feel to me, and I know nothing about Facebook, so take this <laughs> with a grain of salt, if you will. It doesn't feel to me like it's like, you know, Sons of Thunder style. Like, I feel like yeah. there are other Facebook groups where it's like the immediate response is like somebody says something and they're like, do you want us to call down fire and brimstone on these guys? <laughs> like, no, just have some conversation. Uh, like, start with charity first. Somebody might be saying something and perhaps they don't have the same level of maturity or they haven't read right. the same stuff you've read or they just don't have the right words yet to express yeah. something. And if you're farther along in that journey, I think it's totally lovely for you to say to Course Correct to provide some kind of you know, opinion on that without, again, just like elevating it to like that. I'm just going to destroy you here yeah. in front of everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I remember this is a really good, a really fond memory of mine and a really good example of what I'm talking about is when I was, you know, we, I've kind of told my story, like I've always kind of been reformed but when I was really starting to come into understanding confessional theology and really trying to, trying to get my head around what that was. I, I was enamored with the Reform Forum guys, and somehow I ended up being friends, Facebook friends with Nick, Nick Batzig at the time, and he was still still active with Reform Forum. I don't think he is anymore, but um, I was on his Facebook group, and somebody made a comment about images of Jesus, and I, I went in just blasting it, like, oh, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, and it was it was basically like the confessional position, and he very patiently and very gently just said, you know— when I was when I was first becoming reformed, I thought this was kind of silly too. But then here here are the arguments that were persuasive to me. And he laid out the standard arguments, regulative principle, the historian principle. We've talked about all these different things that that I think are compelling, that you think are compelling. He just very patiently and gently and kindly laid them out and said, "I'm not going to try to argue with you. This is this is the position that I think is most faithful to the Bible." take a look and let me know what you think. And I won't pretend that it was like, I looked at them and immediately was like, yes, he's right. This is right. But I look back on that now. And I, I think about the fact that those arguments that he laid out were so cogently presented and so winsomely presented that what, what might have been a moment for me to be like, yeah, these are just dumb. I can't believe you're so dumb because he's so gently laid them out to me and was so kind in responding to some rando on the internet that he had no idea who I was he he kind of won me over by his character to consider his arguments even though i thought at first they were kind of silly he was acting with such character and such grace in that moment that i felt compelled to actually think about what he had to say that's the kind of group we want to foster in the reform brotherhood facebook group right on that sounds like a very merciful response yes, yes. certainly speaking, was not certainly was not antinomian at all exactly that man the combined segue that we just did there. I know. I hope people listen. If you did, if and nobody laughed at that, you need to repent because yeah. that was like a beautiful thing that just happened there. That's a that's a thing I'll quarrel over is whether or not you should have laughed at that <laughs> transition. <laughs> so speaking of mercy, the reason why I wanted to bring up this topic of mercy correction and antinomianism is I actually think mercy is a bit in a bear market, is a bit underemphasized, is a bit misunderstood. 
And sometimes you see mercy and antinomianism like sandwiched together as if, yeah. well, if you emphasize mercy too much, you're going to end up in antinomian and correction is really not exactly mercy. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to just a dialogue about these three terms, how they fit together, how they don't fit together. And I think maybe a good place to start would be to think about what are the properties of God's mercy? You know, if somebody were to come up to you and say like, because we throw around the words mercy and grace all the time, they're in our prayer lives, they're in our hymnals, they're in our contemporary music. We speak of God's mercy and grace in our lives. And often we mean that experientially and not necessarily theologically, though we don't parse them out like that. And so I think it's helpful to think, what are like the essential properties of God's mercy? If you describe it from the scriptures, how do you emphasize what God's mercy looks like? So here's, let me start with one and then I'll kick it over to you and you can kind of comment on this or throw some back at at us. So here's the number one thing I would say as I've been processing this is that God's mercy, it's free and spontaneous. So first, and this is, I would say more or less a a reform distinctive to set up any kind of merit is to destroy mercy. This is in fact, of course, what propelled Martin Luther to drop his 95 theses and blow everything up in some respects. Nothing can deserve mercy or force it. We, We cannot deserve it nor force it because of our enmity with God. So we may force God to punish us, but we cannot force him to love us. Right. So when Hosea says, speaking of God, I will love them freely. This is what he's talking about. It's free and spontaneous. Like it must go together in that sense, in the way that God chooses by election, not because again, he looks down the corridors of time, sees again, some kind of performance, sees some kind of willingness or heart attitude or willingness to have a heart attitude that would accept him. It is spontaneous in that way. So like every link in the golden chain of salvation that Paul talks about to me, it's like wrought and interwoven with this free grace. Election is free. Ephesians 1.4 says, he has chosen us in him according to the good pleasure of his will. Justification is free, being justified freely by his grace. So for me, preeminently in a property of God's mercy is it's free and spontaneous. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? We, we wouldn't, um, you know, if, if you think about our criminal justice system, and the judge sentences someone to something and the guy goes, wait a second though, hold on. Can you like show me some mercy and then gives a bunch of reasons. And one of those reasons is like, well, actually like I didn't even do the crime and you know, I didn't do the crime. And he's like, yeah, I'll show you mercy by excusing you since you didn't do the crime. That makes no sense because mercy as a definition has to have some sort of standard that's being foregone. Right. And so God's mercy is that he uh, he has a standard of his moral character, which he's communicated to us uh, by nature, but then more explicitly in the Ten Commandments and the moral law. And there's a a justice and a a reasonable punishment that is earned and merited when someone violates that law, both in our, you know, our covenantal head, Adam, when he violated that, he merited for us punishment and condemnation, uh, and then also our own personal sins, which we bring we bring to the table as well. That's the standard. If, if somehow we conceive of mercy as though we have done something or contributed something that allows God to relax that standard or replace that standard, instead of simply saying, because I am good, because I am merciful, because I am gracious, and because I love this person, I'm going to make atonement for their sin. That's the other thing with human mercy. Sometimes it's just 
choosing not to enforce the standard. Like right. we just choose not to enforce the standard. Sometimes when the cop pulls you over and you were doing 40 and a 30, he just chooses not to give you a ticket. There's no, uh, it usually shouldn't be that you've somehow explained to the officer why it's okay that you broke the law. Usually when that happens, it's just the officer is deciding not to give you a ticket. That in a certain sense is actually unjust, right? Because right. You, you you merited it. The law says you have to do it. Someone else committed the same crime in the same context and the same, same reasoning probably got a ticket. God's mercy is never unjust. It's never, uh, it's never, creating a situation where justice is not served. Instead, it's God being the just and justifier, which we've talked about in the atonement series is there's that it's almost like a converter that just in the justifier, yes. the atonement is a converter, which allows God to be both just and the justifier. Exactly. And that's where his mercy comes in is that if for some reason that converter contains our own goodness or our own willingness or our own good works or our own, even our faith, if that, if that converter contains something we've contributed, then it's no longer mercy because then what it is is now God is, is reacting to something we've contributed that's caused him to overlook the application of his law, which is very different than mercy, at least in terms of how God is, uh, is, is conceptualized in the scripture. Right on. You actually stole my point. Again, I was going to point people back to our atonement series where we really evaluated all the theories of atonement under, does this subscribe to God as dust and justifier? This is like the beauty of Christianity is that at the cross, we have both the law and the gospel coming together, both being fulfilled mutually. But here's the thing, and this is why I want to talk about mercy. Here's the thing I think we often forget is, you know, I hear people say like, you know how people get riled up about having like the 10 commandments, like posted in lots of places. Like they like to have them in the courts. They'd like to have them in the schools. I always find that, somewhat silly to be honest, because all the law does is tell you what a righteous person looks like. There's no power in the law by itself. So, I mean, it's not like when you see the speed limit sign and says 65, that somehow you are enabled by viewing the law itself to obey that. In fact, most people, if you're like me say, well, this tells me how far I can go over what's required here with power so I can not get caught. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was going to save this more toward the end, but I think you brought it up at the right time, which is if we would have mercy, it must be through Christ. This is the only way that we get mercy. It's because out of Christ, no mercy is to be had. It doesn't exist outside of Christ. So when we read in the old law that none might come into the holy of holies where the mercy seat stood, but the high priest, it's to signify that we have nothing to do with mercy, but through Christ, our high priest that the high priest might not come near that mercy seat without blood. That's to show us that we have no right to mercy, but through the expiatory sacrifice of Christ's blood. And that the high priest might not, upon like the pain of death, come near the mercy seat without incense. Right. It's really to show us that there is no mercy from God without the incense of Christ's intercession. So if we would have mercy, we must get a part in Christ. This is where it all comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when when you think about the way that the, like I said, human humans sometimes in showing mercy actually commit an act of injustice. And sometimes that's okay, right? Because human laws are, are, they're human laws. They're not, they're not perfectly formulated. They're not perfectly applied. And so sometimes when a, a police officer, for example, or a judge or 
an employer who's executing the the laws of the institution they work for, whatever it might be, when some authority is is enforcing a human law, usually when that law is not enforced, the injustice, kind of in air quotes of it, is in that individual agent making a decision to uh, to think of the law in sort of the the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Right. The officer who pulls you over for speeding and asks you where you're going and you say, oh, man, I'm really running late and my dog is at home and he's, he hasn't eaten. And I'm sure that he's very freaked out. And I'm really just I'm sorry I was speeding, but I just got to get home to my dog. The officer is probably going to do some sort of calculation in their head that goes. This person wasn't trying to maliciously break the law. The road's empty, so they weren't actually endangering anybody. The purpose of the law and the intent behind the law is not arbitrary. It's there to, for public safety reasons. And so in this case, the spirit of the law is to to ensure public safety. He hasn't hampered public safety, so I'm not going to give him a ticket. Right? That's not That's not fundamentally just according to the letter of the law, but it is just according to the spirit of the law. Right. God's law is perfect, and God always applies it perfectly. Right. And so when, when he chooses to forego punishing me or Jesse or any other Christian, he's choosing to forego punishing us for our sin, but he cannot choose to forego the punishment of that sin. Exactly. Because to do that would be to say that the law itself is not right. So if, if he chooses, and this is why, like, this is why the question comes up with, like, with David, particularly with, with, um, after he has Uriah murdered, right? Why didn't God, why didn't God have him executed? The answer is he didn't have him executed. Sometimes people are like, well, because the first, the first table of the law is worse than the second table. Like th- there's all sorts of reasons that the actual answer is that God was being merciful to David. Amen. There's no reason, Amen. there's no reason why God was being merciful. To think in terms of reason for mercy means that there was something that merited God overlooking that sin. And the only the only thing that we can say merits God overlooking sin is that that sin has been punished, or in the case of David and the Old Testament states, that sin would be punished in Christ on the cross. Right. So when the the only the only actual answer to why wasn't David executed according to the Mosaic law, the only answer we can give is because Jesus died on the cross for that sin. Right on. And so although some although some sins and most sins and th- th- this sin that David committed was not an exception, almost all sins carry some sort of some sort of temporal consequence. Right. David's family was a wreck for the rest of his life. Like that was that was a direct consequence of that sin, o- not only in terms of natural consequences, right? When you when you uh, you make your your son of your mistress the the rightful heir to your throne, it only is is logical and makes sense that the actual heir to your throne is going to be upset about that. Is going to take action like that makes sense. But then also supernaturally, God decreed there was going to be issues in David's life. As a result of that, there's going to be consequences. That doesn't mean that that sin was not paid for. And those those consequences, if you read the Psalms, they actually served to sanctify and to produce endurance, right? James 1, right? Right on. Count it all joy when you face trials of every kind. For we know that the testing of your faith, can you tell what I've been working on memorizing this week? The testing of your faith <laughs> produces steadfastness, right? right and on. that steadfastness... It, it, it's there in order to make sure you're not lacking in anything and that you're complete and perfect, right? That's the purpose of these paternal chastisements. When we're talking about mercy, even those chastisements 
are an act of mercy. And that that's, I think, is the key to this, is that Christians sometimes feel like, well, I, yeah, I'm forgiven for my sin, but God is still, like, taking it out on me, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, like, my, my, I lost my job because I stole from, you know, I stole a bunch of office supplies, and God's just really punishing me by causing me to lose my job. Well, no, first of all, like, you lost your job because you stole from them. Like, let's just look at this realistically. But also, God is not punishing you. He's chastising you. He's shaping you. He's disciplining you. That might be equivocating on terms. It might be, I might be parsing hairs out here, but punishment itself is a, is a different category. Exactly. And I think that when we think about mercy, it really is that God, because of what Jesus Christ did, he forgoes executing the, uh, the just penalty of the law upon an individual sinner because of what Christ did in the place of that sinner. That sounds like some free and spontaneous mercy right there. Right there, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm totally with you because if you look at the patriarchs, if you look at the disciples, what I've been almost shocked to find, and I really mean this seriously, I'm a little bit embarrassed it took me so long to come to this conclusion, is that on the most part, they're people just like me, and they're pretty awful people. So like, for instance, if you just like kind of trace a line through Jacob's life, I mean, the dude is like duplicitous, he's deceitful, he's conniving, he's pretty disgusting. You wouldn't hang out with Jacob. He's not a kind of dude that you want to spend time with because he is just so downright deceitful. And yet, in spite of all that, it's like, God, is it's just mercy after mercy after mercy. God's saying, I'm committed to you. I will bring you back to this place. I will prosper you because this is my plan. And I think this should floor us because that's the promise of God's mercy in our lives. It's a mercy which is amazingly super abundant, which is why Exodus 34 says like it's abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. And that's like against God saying in Exodus 20 that he's going to remember the iniquity of third and fourth generation, but his mercy is for thousands. And there's this, it's almost like there's this treasure store, not Catholic style. There's this treasure store (laughs) of mercy, which is plentiful for us. And it's the same kind of mercy that continues to give divine blessing to Jacob because he's chosen. And again, this is where, if we can transition just a little bit, where I think sometimes then Christians make this critique that, well, that is antinomianism. And we've done a couple episodes on that. So again, you could go to the back catalog and search antinomianism. You'll have, you'll, it's a great way for you to spend an afternoon with us. Just as a refresher, that word comes from two Greek words, anti, of course, meaning against, nomos meaning the law. So quite literally, antinomianism means against the law. And theologically, antinomianism is the belief that there's no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. Now, I feel like Paul addressed this very succinctly in Romans, but for the sake of argument, you know, somebody might ask, well, if I'm saved by grace, if like the mercy that Jacob gets, if I'm chosen by God is the same that I get, then... If all my sins are going to be forgiven, why not sin all I want? And the problem I think with that thinking is one, if you have experienced the mercy that we're talking about, antinomianism like is so far away. It's the farthest thing possible from practical behavior because that thinking is not the result of true conversion because true conversion yields a greater desire to obey, not a lesser one. God's desire and our desire when we're regenerated by his Holy Spirit is that we strive not to sin. This is why you and I have said before that sanctification comes from God at the same time, it's a work harder. And what we mean by that is it's getting that God-like desire. It's the desire to not offend our Savior and our Father. And so out of gratitude for his grace and mercy and forgiveness, we want to please him. And so because of that, antinomia is like a non-category. It does not exist where God's mercy 
flourishes. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, just to put some biblical uh, shoe leather on that here, uh, reading out of Romans 6, I'm going to read a, a pretty sizable chunk here, read, starting, in, starting in verse 1. Uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so this, this, is, this is the classic text, right? Sometimes people think like antinomianism is on one side of the spectrum and legalism is on the other side of the spectrum. And like the right answer, the gospel is somewhere like in the middle there. Not too much law, not too much grace. In reality, that is absolutely wrong. Like that's the right. total, the wrong way to look at it. And this is the logic that Paul uses here. You're alive. Like you're actually alive. You really are truly actually alive in Christ. So do the things that living things do. Grow, prosper, reproduce, like all these things that living things do, that is what you must do necessarily because you are alive. And that's that's why we say like the Christian life is try harder, do better, because that's what living things do. Like they strive for things. They, they're they energetic. They work. They, they, they move around. They eat. They do these different things. It's not as though we're saying in order to become alive, dead thing, you must walk around. What we're saying right. is you're alive. Get up and do something about it. Like that's, that's where we need to go. And that's just the straight logic of this, right? I mean, it, what do I always say? Like, if the scripture doesn't make sense, just read a little bit more, right? We were buried, therefore, with him in uh, by baptism into death, in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the, God, of the Father, we too must walk in newness of life. What does that newness of life look like if it isn't to live a life full of love for God's law and a Amen. striving to live out of gratitude for God's law or gratitude to God by conforming yourself as much as is possible to his law. I've never understood the argument. It's funny because Paul's obviously responding probably to something that people were saying, actually right. saying in, in uh, probably not necessarily in Rome, but probably all around the, the Christian world, people were saying this. I never really understood how you got there. Like God, God hates these things and he saved me. And so the way that I show how gracious he's been is by doing all these things that God says he hates. Like that, that logic has never made sense to me. That's actually one of the reasons why I, you don't run into like true, genuine antinomians, like full on antinomians very often. But when I do run into a full antinomian, I always wonder like this person can't be saved. Like they just can't be because the logic of 
I'm going to do the things God hates just because he Ex- saved me exactly. and allows me to do it. Like exactly. that's a total misunderstanding of the gospel. It's There's a no total Christian misunderstanding. category for that. It's a total misunderstanding of what God has done for us. He didn't save us in order that we may wallow in our sins. He saved us in order that we may walk in the good works he prepared in advance for us. I mean, it's it's almost so elementary that it feels a little silly to even talk about sometimes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's like no Christian category for this, right? That It almost seems like a definition without distinction in the sense that what we're talking about here is like a true liberation from slavery. So it's like right. saying, oh, I'm so thankful that I've been freed. So I'm going to go back to my former master and be a right. slave to sin. I, I see that I've been saved for this abundant life, but you know what would be better is going back to a place where I'm shackled, where I live in misery and right. constraint. This is like the Israelites, you know, walking out of Egypt, being heavy laden with all the treasures of that country and then saying, which they are prone to do, you know what? I'd rather just go back to the meat pots and the leeks. And this is, I think, like you're saying, when we talk about a true regeneration, and by the way, I think anybody's feeling discouraged with this and sensing like, well, you know what? I just feel right now. I feel, I have the sense that I'm not experiencing the mercy of God. We ought to pray for the mercy of God. We ought to come before him and seek that out. But we have to be careful that our feelings don't override what we know to be the truth. And the truth is that God has saved his people. And in so doing, he shows them this incredible mercy that is so beyond comprehension sometimes. Yeah. Like it's, it's so outside of, again, all of us would look at Peter or Jacob or Abraham who seemed to commit the same sins just like me over and over again and say, how are these people being held up as the ones whom God shows amazing divine blessing on? And yeah. the bottom line is, like you said, it's because Jesus died. Jesus died to cover and absolve those sins and then to impute a righteousness that is completely alien, that is not our own, that is God's from God himself, such that who we are is holy. And so because God has made us holy through his mercy, then we are no longer confined to think that somehow our righteousness is wrapped up in a moral living. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what is so key. And where I think a lot of um, a lot of Christians go astray is they're so. Actually, I think this was one of those things that was a major issue in the Young Restless Reformed movement because of sort of the shallow categories, the shallow, such a focus on tulip as like the end all be all of soteriology. There was almost no category in a lot of that theology, a lot of that conversation for sanctification at all. Like it just it was so wrapped up on like justification by faith alone and nothing else. Um, understandably, like that's what they were responding to is they were responding to kind of the shallow evangelicalism that was so focused on like therapeutic living and like living your best life now. And like, you're, you know, if you don't have sex before marriage, you're going to have really great sex after marriage. Like that, that mindset that was so focused on you and what you do and how you, how you save yourself and how God can make your life better. God can be this sort of magic genie that, that makes everything nice for you. There was only this category of trying to refute that. There was no category for ongoing sanctification. And so Christians get stuck in this idea that like justification, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing John Piper. I'm not going to even, even say anything about whether I think he's right or wrong, but this idea that justification is the only thing that we're talking about in salvation and that justification is by faith alone, that so overwhelmed everyone's thinking that the understanding now that sanctification is a thing, first of all, that sanctification also comes by the power of the Spirit through faith, 
and that that it's not something we do, that there was just no space for that. And so I think Christians get wrapped up in they they stop at justification and they think that that's kind of the be all end all and like everything else comes after death. Like I can't really make any progress in the Christian life. I can't really expect that God is actually going to give me any victory over any of these sins. Sometimes he doesn't. More right. often than not, he does though. Like I don't know any Christians who can honestly say that after being a Christian for any amount of time, any significant amount of time, that they're, they haven't made progress in the Christian life, right? A person who makes no progress in the Christian life, I've, I've, been, I've been spending a ton of time in James. That's what James is talking about when he says the doubting person in chapter one. That's right. why he compares them to the waves of the sea, because they make no progress, right? The waves don't ever make it up any further on the beach in any lasting sense than they do, like here and no further. Sometimes they go a little bit further, they always come back. Right, that's the picture that he's painting of this this unchristian person who never makes any progress in the Christian life, the doubter who never makes any progress, and that's where we have to get past. And that's the the funny part is that both legalism and, and this, this is just straight up, straight up uh, plagiarism practically from the whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Legalism and antinomianism both end up marking progress in the Christian life by either adherence to or by denial of the of the law, right? Legalism thinks that you can make progress in the Christian life by conforming yourself to the law, and that's how you measure progress. Antinom- that, that's fundamentally a denial of what the law is, so it's antinomian in a sense. Right. Antinomianism marks Christian progress by how far you've gotten yourself out from underneath the law. <laughs> right. And ne- neither of them actually recognizes that progress in the Christian life is indeed marked out by conformity to God's law, right? That's how you know whether you're making progress in conformity to Christ. Christ is the perfect image of God and the perfect image of the perfect law keeper because he was the one who gave that law and he can he can keep it and he has kept it. Right. So progress in the Christian law, in, in the Old Testament law, the moral law of the Bible, that same progress marks us out as looking more and more like Jesus, following God more and more like Jesus does. But that misunderstanding that either it's the way that we make progress or getting out from underneath the law is the way we make progress. Both of those things are basically the same thing and they reject the law for its proper use. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think we said before, somebody who's wants to be like an iconoclast. So they say, well, in my style and how I dress and present myself, I'm not going to follow any trends. I'm going to do the exact opposite of those trends. That person is still trend following just in the opposite direction. And so this is the same thing with antinomianism. I think uh, to close one of my favorite ever kind of metaphors for the law, and we've talked about this before, but it just bears repeating because it's so good. It's such a vivid image is in Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian is in his journey (laughs) ascending the mountain. And this dude who is the law comes up and just beats him up, like pummels him to the ground. And then literally is like kicking him in the face and the stomach and then runs away. And he gets up and he continues his climb and he meets a fellow traveler on the way. And he says to this traveler, who was that dude? And that guy's like, that's the law. (laughs) Oh, that That, was Moses. (laughs) Yeah, that was Moses like that. And that's what he does. And so like, I want to be careful because I don't want anybody to be too beat up by the law without understanding what we said before, which is if you would have mercy, it must come through Christ. 
that this is what Christ delights to do for his children, is to love on them through this kind of mercy, to receive unjust punishment for sin so that he might love on his children and fulfill that law so that he is the just and the justifier. This is so logically cogent, so logically consistent, so incredibly beautiful that when we understand it, even in part, I think what we're prone to do is to bow the knee in submission and then again to want to please our father, not to ask the question, well, how much of disobeying the law can I get away with Jesus? Because you covered everything. It's how can I please you more by honoring what you've done? Because I am Jacob. I am the one who's deceitful. I'm the one who's disgusting. I'm the one who will turn my life upside down, inside out, who'll make a wreck of it. And when you show me your divine blessing, by not just giving me things that I don't deserve, but by being the savior who I don't deserve, then that propels us into obedience of the law because we got to remember that law is like the mirror. And when you wake up in that sleepy state in the morning, and you look at yourself and you look pretty rough. I think we can all be honest. You look pretty rough in the morning. The mirror shows you that external facade, that roughness, but it does nothing to brush your teeth. It won't bathe you. The mirror is not going to comb your hair or give you nice clothes to wear. It's only going to show you that you're a pretty rough and ugly looking person in that moment. What we need if we want mercy is to come through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take one point of disagreement with you, Jesse. What's that? I've seen you first thing in the morning. You look pretty great most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes that's because I've already been to the mirror. And Maybe. I mean, this beard gets out of control in the morning. Oh, the beard's out of control, but that's okay. <laughs> the beard is it's the beard is in control. That's that's the thing. The beard is the standard. Yeah, fair enough. That's yeah, I mean, you're you're correct. totally right. I, I think we have to recognize what the law is and what it does, right? If I'm trying to figure out, you know, um, let's say I'm trying to practice some of this practical handiness that we're talking about, and I need to I need to cut a board that is 36 inches long, right? I get out a tape measure and I measure it, not because that tape measure somehow defines what it is to be 36 inches long, but because that tape measure accurately reflects what 36 inches actually is. Right on. And so that board is properly conformed to the reality of 36 inches if you use that tape measure to properly mark it out. And that's what the law does in the life of a Christian. It doesn't make me more like Jesus. It doesn't change me and make me look more like Jesus. It shows me what it is to live life the way that Jesus did. To, to conform myself to God's law the way that Jesus conformed himself to God's law. And here's, here's the kicker, loved ones. The way that we do that is exactly the same way that Jesus did that, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Right That's on. why proper Christology is so important, right? Jesus was able to follow and obey the law because he was sanctified by the Holy Spirit above all else. He didn't have a sin nature, so obviously it was a little different. But the, the same Holy Spirit, which was Christ's constant companion and, and who gave him the ability to follow and obey the law— is the same Holy Spirit that is doing the same thing for us. Progressively, over time, right, he's sanctifying us. We won't reach that final sanctification until death, and then we'll be immediately made holy. But that same Spirit that was in Christ is the same Spirit that's in us. And it's important for us to remember that. And, you know, I'm just glad we had this conversation because this— some people are like, yeah, 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 antinomianism, blah, 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 yeah, legalism. This is still a like a live discussion. You know, we talked about like some of those things that it's worth throwing some haymakers about. Like, 
I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this. Like John Piper's <laughs> theology is not good on this, guys. Like, like it's not. Like it's just not. And I'm not quite as uh, maybe. I'm not throwing quite as many haymakers as Scott Clark is on this stuff, but the reality is that he's throwing haymakers because they're good haymakers to throw, right? When you really read what's going on with some of this theology, or we, we've we've talked about lordship salvation and how dangerous that can be for the Christian life and how how bad it can be. We're talking about federal vision. I'm actually convinced that federal vision, new perspective on Paul, particularly as N.T. Wright expresses it, um, you know, this weird stuff with John Piper and Lordship Salvation. This is all actually what happens when you try to hold a reformed theology of salvation without a proper covenant framework is you get the place of the raw of the law and how it functions in the life of a Christian. You get it wrong. And that leads to all these different kinds of errors that have sort of this particularly reformed flavor to them. You really just have to get it right. And the only way to do that is to study the scripture and to allow the spirit right. to, to, to teach you. But the reality of it is the antinomianism, legalism, those are both things that are worth throwing some haymakers over. So if it sounds like we maybe are coming at this a little hard, it's because it's worth coming at it hard. It is. We're hot. I'm going to go through the wall pretty hard. Well, I mean, Jesse's hot, but this. <laughs> Listen, you're not so bad looking yourselves. We got to do that live. <laughs> that this live just got weird. At some point. This Listen, just got weird. There's a lot. There's a lot of love. Hey, listen, we're we're doing this together. I, we always appreciate people are tagging along in our conversations, and hopefully, this can be used by you to either process what we've been talking about, or again, start your own conversation. And this podcast will always be free. That's something that Tony and I committed to. Freely we've received, and freely we want to give. And so we're so thankful for all of our brothers and sisters, and especially those who have decided to support it financially, so that way it can continue to remain free for everybody. So I want to especially call out Brother Jim and Brother Elias, who recently, through Patreon.com, became subscribers to the podcast with their donations. Thank you so much. And if you're a person that's interested in supporting this work so it can remain free for everybody, and so that... Tony and I can continue to make spiritual related puns and talk about Pokemon and talk about <laughs> running through walls, all the stuff you've come to love about us that you just cherish that could be annoying, but you find just darn right cute. All that stuff can be maintained uh, if you go to patreon.com backslash the Reformed Brotherhood. So again, thanks to Brother Jim and Brother Elias for keeping us, keeping us on the air. Yes. Yeah. And just a side note. If you were a Patreon subscriber as of like the beginning of August, end of July, you got a special code sent to you through your Patreon account for a limited edition Patreon supporters only enamel camp mug. So those uh, those codes are going to work for you through the end of August. So make sure that if you haven't redeemed your special Patreon code to order that, that you go to reformbrotherhood.com, click on join the brotherhood, and there should be an option for gear or merch or something of that nature. And uh, just toss that bad boy in your cart. Just ignore the fact that it costs a million dollars. Throw in your special little coupon code and it will drop to zero. Now, if you are super wealthy <laughs> and you want to buy a mug for a million dollars, I'm not going to stop you. So go ahead and do that if you want to just like set Jesse and I up for the rest of our lives. But uh, but please don't do that. That's that's ridiculous. It's like a like a 
cheapy. It's not cheap, but it's it's like a like a camp mug. Don't spend a million dollars on that. If you got a million dollars to blow, give it to something much more important than this podcast. But seriously, if you're a Patreon supporter, go use that special code I sent you in your uh, your Patreon account and get your mug. They're pretty sweet. I have one. My wife immediately stole it. Justin and I were talking about this before the show. That's how you know they're great. Yes. Is when someone steals it like immediately. Yes. So check it out. It's a sweet enamel camp mug. It's got Jesse and my face on it with that that sweet Reformed Brotherhood logo that uh, that uh, the guy who does Raft Tunes was so gracious to put together for us. Uh, check it out. But yeah, thank you to everyone who supports us. Even if you didn't get in on this particular thank you gift yet, uh, we're planning on doing something special like this every year. And uh, we just love the people who support us. We're so thankful that it helps keep the lights on, as it were, for our show. Um, you know, there's not a lot of expensive, but the ones that are there, uh, they're important. And it, to know that there's people out there helping us make sure that those bills are paid uh, is really, really helpful to us. Well, thanks for hanging out, everyone, and talking a little bit about mercy, correction, antinomianism. We got to do it again. But until we do, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.